Chapter One of Kepler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Kepler by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter One Astronomy Before Kepler. In order to emphasize the importance of the reforms introduced into astronomy by Kepler, it will be well to sketch briefly the history of the theories which he had to overthrow. In very early times it must have been realized that the sun and moon were continually changing their places among the stars. The day, the month, and the year were obvious divisions of time, and longer periods were suggested by the tabulation of eclipses. We can imagine the respect accorded to the Chaldean sages who first discovered that eclipses could be predicted, and how the philosophers of Mesopotamia must have sought eagerly for evidence of fresh periodic laws. Certain of the stars, which appeared to wander, and were hence called planets, provided an extended field for these speculations. Among the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, the knowledge gradually acquired was probably confined to the priests and utilized mainly for astrological prediction or the fixing of religious observances. Such speculations as were current among them, and also among the Egyptians and others who came to share their knowledge, were almost entirely devoted to mythology, assigning fanciful terrestrial origins to constellations, with occasional controversies as to how the earth is supported in space. The Greeks, too, had an elaborate mythology largely adapted from their neighbors, but they were not satisfied with this, and made persistent attempts to reduce the apparent motions of celestial objects to geometrical laws. Some of the Pythagoreans, if not Pythagoras himself, held that the earth is a sphere, and that the apparent daily revolution of the sun and stars is really due to a motion of the earth, though at first this motion of the earth was not supposed to be one of rotation about an axis. These notions, and also that the planets on the whole move round from west to east with reference to the stars, were made known to a larger circle through the writings of Plato. To Plato, moreover, is attributed the challenge to astronomers to represent all the motions of the heavenly bodies by uniformly described circles, a challenge generally held responsible for a vast amount of wasted effort, and the postponement, for many centuries, of real progress. Eudoxus of Nidus, endeavouring to account for the fact that the planets, during every apparent revolution round the earth, come to rest twice, and in the shorter interval between these stationary points move in the opposite direction, found that he could represent the phenomena fairly well by a system of concentric spheres, each rotating with its own velocity, and carrying its own particular planet round its own equator, the outermost sphere carrying the fixed stars. It was necessary to assume that the axes about which the various spheres revolved should have circular motions also, and gradually an increased number of spheres was evolved, the total number required by Aristotle reaching fifty-five. It may be regarded as counting in Aristotle's favour that he did consider the earth to be a sphere, and not a flat disk, but he seems to have thought that the mathematical spheres of Eudoxus had a real solid existence, and that not only meteors, shooting stars, and aurora, but also comets and the Milky Way belong to the atmosphere. His really great service to science in collating and criticizing all that was known of natural science would have been greater if so much of the discussion had not been on the exact meaning of words used to describe phenomena, instead of on the facts and causes of the phenomena themselves. Aristarchus, 
of Samos seems to have been the first to suggest that the planets revolved not about the earth but about the sun. But the idea seemed so improbable that it was hardly noticed, especially as Aristarchus himself did not expand it into a treatise. About this time the necessity for more accurate places of the sun and moon, and the liberality of the Ptolemies who ruled Egypt, combined to provide regular observations at Alexandria, so that when Hipparchus came upon the scene there was a considerable amount of material for him to use. His discoveries marked a great advance in the science of astronomy. He noted the irregular motion of the sun, and, to explain it, assumed that it revolved uniformly not exactly about the earth, but about a point some distance away, called the eccentric. Footnote. See glossary for this and other technical terms. End footnote. The line joining the center of the earth to the eccentric passes through the apses of the sun's orbit, where its distance from the earth is greatest and least. The same result he could obtain by assuming that the sun moved round a small circle, whose center described a larger circle about the earth. This larger circle carrying the other was called the deferent, so that the actual motion of the sun was in an epicycle. Of the two methods of expression Hipparchus ultimately preferred the second. He applied the same process to the moon, but found that he could depend upon its being right only at new and full moon. The irregularity at first and third quarters he left to be investigated by his successors. He also considered the planetary observations at his disposal insufficient, and so gave up the attempt at a complete planetary theory. He made improved determinations of some of the elements of the motions of the sun and moon, and discovered the precession of the equinoxes, from the Alexandrian observations which showed that each year as the sun came to cross the equator at the vernal equinox, it did so at a point about fifty seconds of arc earlier on the ecliptic, thus producing in one hundred fifty years an unmistakable change of a couple of degrees, or four times the sun's diameter. He also invented trigonometry. His star catalogue was due to the appearance of a new star which caused him to search for possible previous similar phenomena, and also to prepare for checking future ones. No advance was made in theoretical astronomy for two hundred sixty years the interval between Hipparchus and Ptolemy of Alexandria. Ptolemy accepted the spherical form of the earth, but denied its rotation or any other movement. He made no advance on Hipparchus in regard to the sun, though the lapse of time had largely increased the errors of the elements adopted by the latter. In the case of the moon, however, Ptolemy traced the variable inequality noticed sometimes by Hipparchus at first and last quarter which vanished when the moon was in apogee or perigee. This he called the evection, and introduced another epicycle to represent it. In his planetary theory he found that the places given by his adopted eccentric did not fit, being one way at apogee and the other at perigee, so that the centre of distance must be nearer the earth. He found it best to assume the centre of distance halfway between the centre of the earth and the eccentric, thus bisecting the eccentricity. Even this did not fit in the case of Mercury, and in general the agreement between theory and observation was spoilt by the necessity of making all the orbital planes pass through the centre of the earth, instead of the sun, thus making a good accordance practically impossible. After Ptolemy's time very little was heard for many centuries of any fresh planetary theory, though advances in some points of detail were made, notably by some of the Arab philosophers, who obtained improved values for some of the elements by using better instruments. 
From time to time various modifications of Ptolemy's theory were suggested, but none of any real value. The Moors in Spain did their share of the work carried on by their Eastern co-religionists, and the first independent star catalogue since the time of Hipparchus was made by another Oriental, Tamerlane's grandson, Ulug Beg, who built a fine observatory at Samarkand in the fifteenth century. In Spain the work was not monopolized by the Moors, for in the thirteenth century Alfonso of Castile, with the assistance of Jewish and Christian computers, compiled the Alphonsine Tables, completed in 1252, in which year he ascended the throne as Alfonso X. They were long circulated in manuscript, and were first printed in 1483, not long before the end of the period of stagnation. Copernicus was born in 1473 at Thorn in Polish Prussia. In the course of his studies at Krakow, and at several Italian universities, he learnt all that was known of the Ptolemaic astronomy, and determined to reform it. His maternal uncle, the Bishop of Ermland, having provided him with a lay canonry in the Cathedral of Frauenburg, he had leisure to devote himself to science. Reviewing the suggestions of the ancient Greeks, he was struck by the simplification that would be introduced by reviving the idea that the annual motion should be attributed to the earth itself, instead of having a separate annual epicycle for each planet, and for the sun. Of the seventy-odd circles or epicycles required by the latest form of the Ptolemaic system, Copernicus succeeded in dispensing with rather more than half. But he still required thirty-four, which was the exact number assumed before the time of Aristotle. His considerations were almost entirely mathematical, his only invasion into physics being in the defence of the moving earth against the stock objection that, if the earth moved, loose objects would fly off and towers fall. He did not break sufficiently away from the old tradition of uniform circular motion. Ptolemy's efforts at exactness were balked, as we have seen, by the supposed necessity of all the orbit planes passing through the earth and if Copernicus had simply transferred this responsibility to the sun, he would have done better. But he would not sacrifice the old fetish, and so, the orbit of the earth being clearly not circular with respect to the sun, he made all his planetary planes pass through the centre of the earth's orbit, instead of through the sun. Thus handicapping himself in the same way, though not in the same degree, as Ptolemy, his thirty-four circles or epicycles comprised four for the earth, three for the moon, seven for Mercury, on account of his highly eccentric orbit, and five each for the other planets. It is rather an exaggeration to call the present accepted system the Copernican system, as it is really due to Kepler, half a century after the death of Copernicus, but much credit is due to the latter for his successful attempt to provide a real alternative for the Ptolemaic system, instead of tinkering with it. The old geocentric system, once shaken, the way was gradually smoothed for the heliocentric system, which Copernicus, still hampered by tradition, did not quite reach. He was hardly a practical astronomer in the observational sense. His first recorded observation of an occultation of Aldebaran was made in 1497, and he is not known to have made as many as fifty astronomical observations, while of the few he did make and use, at least one was more than half a degree in error which would have been intolerable to such an observer as Hipparchus. Copernicus, in fact, seems to have considered accurate observations unattainable with the instruments at hand. He refused to give any opinion on the projected reform of the calendar, on the ground that the motions of the sun and moon were not known with sufficient accuracy. 
It is possible that with better data he might have made much more progress. He was in no hurry to publish anything, perhaps on account of possible opposition. Certainly Luther, with his obstinate conviction of the verbal accuracy of the scriptures, rejected as mere folly the idea of a moving earth. And Melanchthon thought such opinions should be prohibited. But Reticus, a professor at the Protestant University of Wittenberg, and an enthusiastic pupil of Copernicus, urged publication, and undertook to see the work through the press. This, however, he was unable to complete, and another Lutheran, Osiander, to whom he entrusted it, wrote a preface, with the apparent intention of disarming opposition, in which he stated that the principles laid down were only abstract hypotheses convenient for purposes of calculation. This unauthorized interpolation may have had its share in postponing the prohibition of the book by the Church of Rome. According to Copernicus, the earth is only a planet like the others, and not even the biggest one, while the sun is the most important body in the system, and the stars probably too far away for any motion of the earth to affect their apparent places. The earth, in fact, is very small in comparison with the distance of the stars, as evidenced by the fact that an observer anywhere on the earth appears to be in the middle of the universe. He shows that the revolution of the earth will account for the seasons, and for the stationary points and retrograde motions of the planets. He corrects definitely the order of the planets outwards from the sun, a matter which had been in dispute. A notable defect is due to the idea that a body can only revolve about another body or a point as if rigidly connected with it, so that in order to keep the earth's axis in a constant direction in space, he has to invent a third motion. His discussion of precession, which he rightly attributes to a slow motion of the earth's axis, is marred by the idea that the precession is variable. With all its defects, partly due to reliance on bad observations, the work showed a great advance in the interpretation of the motions of the planets, and his determinations of the periods both in relation to the earth and to the stars were adopted by Reinhold, professor of astronomy at Wittenberg, for the new Prutenic or Prussian tables, which were to supersede the obsolete Alphonsine tables of the thirteenth century. In comparison with the question of the motion of the earth, no other astronomical detail of the time seems to be of much consequence. Comets, such as from time to time appeared, bright enough for naked-eye observation, were still regarded as atmospheric phenomena and their principal interest, as well as that of eclipses and planetary conjunctions, was in relation to astrology. Reform, however, was obviously in the air. The doctrine of Copernicus was destined very soon to divide others besides the Lutheran leaders. The leaven of inquiry was working, and not long after the death of Copernicus real advances were to come, first in the accuracy of observations, and, as a necessary result of these, in the planetary theory itself. End of chapter 1. Recording by Bill Borst.